Just one verse of scripture this morning from Revelation 21, verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is God's word. Amen. Have to be careful not to start a fire here. These candles. Um, good morning, and welcome to Redeemer City Church, as Jonathan said. Hope you've been greeted already um, this morning. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad to see such a packed house on the first Sunday of the new year. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, or if you missed any of the sermons uh, through December, we just finished our Advent series on the I Am statements of Jesus. Now, if you don't have any idea what any of that means, let me help you out for a second. Um, Advent is the season leading up to Christmas, and it's a time that we celebrate the arrival of Jesus into the world. Because as Christians, we really do think that Jesus's arrival into this world was a radical event. It was an event that completely changed the course of human history, not just human history, actually the history of everything that exists. And so as we prepared for Christmas, we spent the month talking about the ways that Jesus described himself. So for example, he said, I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door. I am the resurrection. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then Brandon, last week, I am the vine. All those sermons are available online. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them if you missed any of them. But Jesus describes himself in these ways, I think, for two reasons. The first is that he wants to make sure that people understood that he was claiming to be God. The first part of those statements, I am, is the way that God had described himself to his people in the Old Testament. It was God's declaration of himself as self-existent. He was saying, I am the creator and sustainer of everything. He told Moses, I am who I am. And this self-description of God is what Jesus is echoing in his own I am statements. He's making it abundantly clear to people that he is God. But then he finishes each of these statements with an explanation of his work. Again, Brandon and Drew walked through those all of December, but Jesus is giving his purpose for coming into the world. He's saying, I'm here to meet every need of humanity. I'm bread. I'm light. I'm a shepherd. I'm a door to the kingdom. I'm resurrection to new life. All of these things explain Jesus's purpose in coming. They explain for us why it's necessary to wait through Advent for his incarnation. And so now as Christians, as people who claim to follow this God-man Jesus, what do we do when Advent is over? Jesus came, but he also ascended back to his father and said that he was going to come again. So are we, in, as Christians, in another season of Advent, another season of waiting 
for him to return? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. We're in a time that you've often heard us talk about here before, a time that we call the now or the already, but the not yet. And what we mean by that is that Jesus is coming back one day. Everything that he promised isn't finished yet. But it's not only in the future. He did start something. He did begin something now, something already, something new. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be doing a series where we're looking at the new things that Jesus is already doing in our world today. So you can think of this morning as sort of a transition sermon from Advent to this new work of Jesus. And we're going to do that by looking at another I am statement of Jesus. But it's not one of the ones that we've discussed. It's not actually included in the traditional list of I am statements that Jesus gives because it's not in John's gospel, but it's this one from Revelation 21.5. Listen again. Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. This I am statement isn't just Jesus explaining his self-existence. It's not even just explaining his purpose in creation. In the Greek here, the verb am making is active. This is an I am statement that says that Jesus is active in our world today. I am making all things new. So this morning as we prepare to look at the next few weeks of Jesus's already continual making of things new, we're going to look at just this verse from about 30,000 feet up. Over the few weeks, we're going to get closer and closer and closer to understanding what Jesus is doing now. But this morning, we're just going to stay very basic, which is why it's just this one verse. And we're going to ask two things. First, what does Jesus mean by all things? And then second, what does he mean that he's making them new? Before we do that, let's take just a moment to pray. Father, as we look this morning at uh, your word, we ask for hope more than anything else because uh, Christmas is over, New Year's is over. It's easy for us to be overwhelmed a little bit as we return to the reality of the brokenness in the world that we live in. As Jonathan prayed earlier for things we see overseas, as Drew said, things we see at home. We had a funeral yesterday. We're back in this broken world that the holidays sometimes give us a distraction from. And so we pray for hope that Advent and Christmas and New Year are a beginning, not an ending. We need a renewed hope that Jesus is making all things new, that his work is active now, that it's doing something in our world now. And so we pray that you would Help us to see that and to feel that in your word this morning. Amen. So there's an author that I'm reading with Joe and a few guys here in the church named Brandon Sanderson. Uh, he's the author of sort of fantasy science fiction. 
And over the last few months, I've read a variety of his books. Again, if you know Joe, he, uh, he doesn't go into anything lightly. And so he jumped into these books and has brought other people with him. They're fantastic. And in one of these books by Brandon Sanderson, there's a great city, an incredible city called Elantris. And in the book, the, the city is essentially described as the city of the gods because it's ruled by these people who are almost immortal. They have incredible strength, power, wisdom, intelligence. They can wave their hands and heal people. They provide food and wisdom for anybody that visits the city. The city itself is described as a place of power, radiance, magic. The stones of the city have this inner light inside of them that somehow glows and you don't even have to have lamps or lights. The city has incredible art. There are sculptures and paintings and architecture. Everything about this city is incredibly beautiful. But at the beginning of the book, all of that beauty has been lost. There's a curse that has come to this city of Elantris. First, it cursed the people that lived there. Their skin turned gray. Then their hair turned gray and it fell out. They don't even actually have a heartbeat anymore or even blood in their veins. When they get injured, the injuries never heal. So they get a scrape or a bruise or a cut and the pain of that never stops. It's unending and often drives many of the people to insanity. So the city has been cursed. It's been left to rot. It's essentially become an expensive tomb for these former gods that are now described as sickly monstrosities. The city itself is covered in filth. Every single surface from the walls of the buildings to the cracks in the cobblestones is covered in this disgusting grime. Rain doesn't wash it away. It's almost impossible to clean. And so everything, the people and the city itself looks black and brown and green, almost like sewage. There's no more art or beauty because it's all been covered by this filth. There's no more food or healing, and people that used to come to Elantris now stay away from it because it's nothing but death and a shadow of what it was before. And this is a perfect example, I think, of what sin has done to Jesus' creation. Genesis 1 says that when Jesus created everything, he called it good. It's the same word that's translated in other places as prosperous or valuable or beautiful. Genesis 1 calls God's creation good seven times in that chapter, which is the number the Bible often uses for perfection or for completeness. So Genesis 1 wants us to understand that God's creation was made absolutely, completely, perfectly beautiful. And in the creation account, that includes everything from the heavens to the earth, from the stars to the oceans, from the plants to the animals, and then finally to God's greatest creation, people, his image bearers. Like the city of Elantris, God intends his creation to be this incredible home of beauty and life 
for his image bearers to rule over. But, like Elantris, there is a curse that has come. In Genesis 3, sin enters the story, and it completely covers every single aspect of what was created. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or if Christianity is somewhat new to you, you might have always thought of sin as only related to people. Maybe you just thought about it as a way to categorize the the bad things that people do, the way to distinguish right from wrong. But I want you to see this morning that the Bible's picture of sin is so much more than that. Sin is absolutely cosmic in its curse. It infects every single part of God's beautiful creation, from the heavens to the earth. Romans 8 describes it this way. It says that the creation has been subjected to futility, that it's in bondage to corruption, that it's groaning in pain. These are all descriptions about the absolute cosmic curse that all of creation is under. And we see that everywhere, right? In the heavens, stars burn out and they create black holes that suck in everything, including light. Asteroids fly through space and they hit planets. The cold of space allows nothing to survive on its own. And then on Earth, there are natural disasters. There are killer animals, poisonous plants, and humans, God's image bearers, who destroy nature and destroy one another. And we haven't even gotten to how every single part of each individual person is corrupted and cursed. From our bodies to our souls. So as people, we abuse and destroy God's creation. We kill each other. We get cancer and viruses and diseases. We suffer from loneliness and anxiety and depression and addiction. And sometimes... We even kill ourselves to escape the curse. I don't have to even ask you to reflect on the ways that the curse has impacted you. Every person here can immediately resonate with something in that list of ways that we've been cursed. And this curse, this corruption is so powerful, it is so all-encompassing that even the things we create are cursed. Just think of one example, the internet. The internet is probably the greatest technological creation of mankind. It's it's done amazing things. It's created connections between people, it's allowed progress and prosperity, but we don't have to look far to see the way the curse has been elevated by the internet the way that it's, the internet is now exploited for the sex trade, for financial corruption, the way that social media spreads discord amongst people, the way that regular people speak to each other on social media. Think about the pornography industry. Do you know that it has more revenue than the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined? Primarily because of the advent of the internet. There was a recent article 
about a company that targets sexual predators online. They created a fake 11-year-old girl on Instagram, and within two hours of posting a regular, normal, non-sexual photo, that profile had 15 sexually explicit private messages from adult men. After nine months of doing this work, this was their quote, we still continued to be stunned by the breadth of cruelty and perversion we see. This is what people do to even their greatest creation. So it doesn't take us any more evidence to see that something is radically wrong with everything. Or as our verse this morning describes it, something is wrong with all things. That's the Bible's way of describing everything that exists in God's creation, all things. And all things are radically, powerfully cursed. So here in Revelation 21, when Jesus says that he's making all things new, I hope you're starting to get a picture of why that should be so powerful for us. Why we so desperately need that. It wasn't much fun to sit and think about and reflect on the depth of the curse of sin to write this part of the sermon. And I'm sure it's not fun to sit and reflect on these things yourselves as I preach about them. But I can say with absolute certainty that something this morning about the curse isn't just words in a sermon to you, that it actually hits home, that you've experienced it, or you've done it, or it's been done to you. Because the curse of sin is the common human experience. In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan calls it the burden that everyone bears. Anselm of Canterbury calls it the great weight on every soul. Cornelius Plantinga called it pollution over all of creation. C.S. Lewis called it a fountain that flows on until the end of time. Every writer, every thinker, every philosopher, every person who's ever existed has wrestled with the curse of sin in the creation and inside of themselves. So then what are we left with? What hope is there for us cursed people? Well, something has to be done about that curse over all things from someone that's not under all things. That's the hope that Jesus offers us. He promises to make all things new. In our reading of the law and the assurance of pardon this morning, we read from Romans chapter 5. You can look back in your bulletin at the liturgy. But verses 12 through 14... The reading of the law describes what we just finished talking about. It describes the way in which sin has entered the world. It came through Adam. It brought death. It spreads to everything in creation. But then in 15 through 17, the assurance of pardon, Paul makes a shift. He begins to describe the way in which Jesus undoes the curse. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection radically undo the curse of sin. And it does that, Romans 5 tells us, 
through an abundance of grace. Grace is the antidote to the curse. Grace, the free gift of God to us, not based on anything we do, but given freely in the person of Jesus. This is the antidote to the curse. In the Christmas hymn that we all know, Joy to the World, we're told that with the coming of Jesus, quote, sin and sorrow will no longer grow. Instead, his blessings will flow where? As far as the curse is found. Everywhere that sin did its cursing work, grace does its healing work. Now I want to reflect on that for just a few minutes because grace undoing the work of the curse leaves me with a couple questions. First is, why does Jesus make things new instead of making new things? Does that make sense? If your house gets damaged by a hurricane, you have a choice. Do you restore it or do you build a new one? If you get in a car wreck, do you use the insurance money to restore your car or to get a new one? Jesus could have simply decided to start over. He could have wiped out everything that was cursed and he could have made new things, made a brand new creation that was no longer cursed. So why doesn't he do that? Well, I think if we look throughout the story of the Bible, it's because Jesus's very nature is one of restoration and renewal. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, in the middle of God declaring that sin is going to leave everything in creation cursed, there's also a promise. A promise of a child who will undo the curse, who will crush the head of sin. Genesis 10, a little bit later, God establishes a covenant with Noah, and he promises to never again destroy his creation with a flood. Later in Genesis again, Abraham makes a covenant with God. And we're told that he makes this covenant, he follows this covenant because he's looking forward to a restored city of God far off one day. Ezekiel 36, God promises us a new heart, but it's not a different heart. It's a transformed heart. It's a heart that's been restored from one of stone to one of flesh. Isaiah 43 that we read for the call of worship. God promises to do something new. And how does he do that? He takes a desert and he places a stream there that restores the desert to the way that it was supposed to be. So wild animals are no longer wild, but they honor God. His people are no longer thirsty. They're given water. Over and over again in the Old Testament, promises point towards a new country, a new city, a new restored people of God in a new restored creation. In the New Testament, when Jesus begins his public ministry, John the Baptist wants to know if he's really the Messiah. He's in prison, and so he sends his servants to Jesus, and he says, ask Jesus, are you the one that was promised to us, or should we expect somebody different? 
And in Luke 7, listen to the way that Jesus responds to that. You want to know if I'm the one that God sent? Look at the things I'm doing. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is telling John, you want to know if I'm the one that God promised to send, what do you see me doing? Restoration. Taking what was cursed and healing it. Making all things new. A lot of Christians often think of Jesus' work only in connection to the spiritual. But throughout Jesus' life, he healed spiritual and physical, emotional curse. Jesus' entire ministry was about the restoration, the renewal of every part of creation. He tells his disciples, you have spiritual food that I don't know about, doing the work of my Father. And he turns real food and multiplies it to feed real hunger. The woman at the well, he says, there's water you don't know about, spiritual water that will satisfy your deepest thirst. But he also turns water into wine at a wedding. He heals the spiritual storm of demons that's threatening this man that he doesn't know. And he calms a real physical storm that's threatening the safety of his friends. He weeps over the real physical death of his friend Lazarus and then really physically raises him from the dead. And he offers us a spiritual resurrection and a real physical resurrection. Everything Jesus does is concerned with his purpose of making all things new. So I have one other question. Is that still happening today? Is grace still working to undo the curse? I get that that's what Jesus did, but we talked earlier about how easy it is for us to see the curse at work in our world today, in ourselves, in other people around us, in the creation. People that we know still get sick. They still die. Hurricanes still destroy islands and kill people. Sexual predators still seek out children online. And so I don't know about you, but to me it makes it very easy to doubt that any of that is real. Or at the very least, Maybe Jesus just pressed the pause button on his work until he gets back. I think about that at night sometimes, laying in my own bed. Is Jesus really making everything new today, right now? While this thing, whatever that, that thing is for you today, while this thing is going on, is he really making all things new. That's a hard thing to wrestle with in the midst of massive suffering. But I want you to hear this morning 
that the answer from God's word is yes. He is making all things new right now, and we know that because he started, as Jonathan said, with your and my heart. Countless people in here could come and share personal stories about the restoration that Jesus has done and is doing right now. We occasionally have in here resurrection stories during this service. It's a reminder to us that Jesus is at work right now. He gives us the Holy Spirit to produce in us supernatural love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And when we fail at that, he gives us an ability to confess our failure, to repent, and to receive forgiveness. Do you understand how powerful that is? The power of confession and repentance and forgiveness? If you don't, please come and get around some of the people here and experience that. Let them live that out with you because then you will see that Jesus really is making all things new right now. And then Jesus, with these new hearts, these restored hearts, pours grace into them so that those hearts then overflow to the things around them. Can you imagine this city without Heart for Winter Haven? Without Life Choice Pregnancy Center? Without each redeemed, renewed Christian doing redeemed, renewed work in their families, in their neighborhoods, in their workplaces? What would Polk County look like without the churches that God has planted here? Without Christian schools, without Christians teaching in public schools, changing policies, without Christian children going to these schools and influencing their peers. You see, Jesus really is at work right now, today, making things new. But because the curse is so pervasive, because it's so all-encompassing, you have to look at the small things to begin to see where Jesus is at work. Remember, we finished a series on the parables of the kingdom. How many times did Jesus describe his kingdom as something small, something difficult to see, difficult to find, but always growing and growing and growing? And so that's where we have to look to see Jesus making all things new as he begins with each one of us making us new. And then he overflows that grace in our lives. So if you're a Christian here this morning, where is he making you new? Where do you need to submit to the Holy Spirit so that he can do the work, the restoration work in you that he wants to do? How is grace overflowing from your life right now? Or is it? Where are the places that Jesus wants to make new and so he placed you there with immediate access to those, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers. How does the job or the role that he's called you into create an opportunity for him to do that work? If you don't have any idea how to answer those questions, that's okay. Come talk to us. 
As pastors, it's our job to equip you for that work. We're always available for that. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we've said it several times, thank you so much for being with us. We hope this has challenged you to think about the world that you're part of, to see the brokenness, and to ask what it might mean that Jesus wants to make all of that new, including you. If that's something you have questions or thoughts about, let us know. We want to know where this is meeting you this morning. Now, as we end, I want to comment on one last question that I have about Jesus making all things new. Maybe you had this question as we've been talking through it this morning. I understand that Jesus' work then started that process. I've gotten to the point where I understand, okay, he's working today. But what about all of the damage that the curse has already done in my life? What about all of the things in my past that I've done and that have been done to me? Are those included in all things. Because if you're like me, there's a lot of hurt in your past. Again, things that you did to people, things that were done to you. What about those? Maybe there's even a specific thing you're thinking of right now. How is Jesus going to make that thing new? I've hidden it in my heart. I've pushed it to the back of my mind because I don't want to deal with it. How's he going to make that new? Well, let me end with a mysterious but hopefully helpful thought from C.S. Lewis. Drew would be proud. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis talks about each of our journeys to either heaven or to hell. And this is how he answers the question of the things in the past being made new. You cannot, in your present state, understand eternity. But you can get some likeness of it if you say that both good and evil, when they're fully grown, become retrospective. All the earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. And not only the twilight, but all their life on earth will then be seen by the damned to have been hell. This is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for this, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me just have this and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back into their past and contaminate even the pleasure of that sin. Both these processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why, at the end of all things, When the sun rises here, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except 
in heaven. And for those who are us who are followers of Jesus, has that not already been your experience? Even some of the painful things in your past have already begun to be restored and made new by Jesus? Would we trust him to do that with all the pains of the curse in our past, in our present, in our future? Will we trust him to make all things new then, now, and forever? Let's pray. Father, we cannot make all things new. We've tried to make them new outside of us and inside of us, and we fail again and again. We go back to the same sins. We make the same mistakes. We say the same things. We wrong people. We're wronged by people. Over and over again, we try to make things new, and we fail. And so we pray this morning that we would trust in Jesus to do that work. The only one that's able to make all things new is the one that made all things. And so we ask that we would trust him to do that. Thank you for the gift of grace that is your son. Amen. Amen. As we're bound for the promised land, as we're being made new, go with these words of blessing from the Lord, this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.